When you think of the life of a person, you also often think, what happens at the end of their life? How are they remembered? We often do this with epitaphs, and epitaphs we oftentimes put on gravestones. And if you go through a cemetery, you start reading when they were born, when they died, and if there's anything written on them that may be of interest or even humorous. And uh, when we think of epitaphs, I came across some of these tombstones, and these are all actual tombstones. Uh, This one was in Nova Scotia. Here lies Ezekiel Akel, age 102. The good die young. (laughs) Here lies the body of Anna, done to death by a banana. It wasn't the fruit that laid her low, but the skin of the thing that made her go. Here lies Johnny Yeast, parting me for not rising. (laughs) This one's real. Oops. Harry Edsel Smith of Albany, New York, born 1903, died 1942. Looked up the elevator shaft to see if the car was on the way down. It was. (laughs) Here beneath the stone we lie, back to back my wife and I, and when the angels trump shall trill... If she gets up, then I'll lay still. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas and not the brake. And probably my favorite. Lester Moore worked for the Wells Fargo Department, 1880s, and he's buried in Boot Hill, Tombstone, Arizona. Here lies Lester Moore, Four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. Now, when we think of epitaphs, those things on the gravestones, it just tells us who people were and what they did. And somehow the author of 1 Kings comes to the end of the book here and decides to give us a brief snapshot of Jehoshaphat. He gives us just sort of an epitaph of who he is. Oh, there's so much more written about this king in Second Chronicles. There's chapter 17 to 20, three full four chapters about him, but not the author of Kings. Just ten short verses. And as he does it, he, he actually just introduces it real quickly. He gives us a snapshot, verse 41. Now Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, became king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahag, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king. He reigned for 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shelahai. Just very briefly, who he is. 35 years old and he becomes king. He's in the southern kingdom of Judah. There's the northern kingdom of Israel. That's where King Ahab is. And here's how important King Ahab is. Asa, that is Jehoshaphat's uh, dad, dies in 1 Kings 15. We go another seven chapters to 22 to the very end of the chapter before we hear a word about his son, Jehoshaphat. And all in between there is all about Israel, the northern kingdom, and in particular, King Ahab. King Ahab, one of the most wickedest kings in the northern kingdom. Uh, He's the one that's married to Jezebel. Jezebel is the one who spoke to Elijah and scared him to death that he ran away. It's during this period of time that Elijah is the prophet in the northern kingdom. 
And this is the prophet who finds himself telling God and praying, it will not rain for three and a half years. In three and a half years, it doesn't rain. He's a guy who goes to the uh, river of Kidron and he finds himself, God providing for him and a widow, food day in and day out. Elijah's the one, Elijah's the one who goes up on Mount Carmel and works against the prophets of Baal and says, let's all make a sacrifice. And he pours water over his sacrifice. He builds a ditch around his sacrifice. And he prays for God to bring fire down to destroy him. Whew! Wipes out his sacrifice just like that. Elijah is the one who stands on Mount Carmel then, after killing 450 prophets, looks out in the distance and sees a cloud about the size of a man's fist and tells his servant, it's going to pour down rain. It starts raining after three and a half years. Ahab takes off on his chariot to go back to the city. Elijah, who's called fire from heaven on that day, killed 450 prophets that day, finds himself now outrunning King Ahab to the city for 22 miles, and he outruns the chariot. It's the next day that Jezebel, the queen, tells a servant she's going to do to Elijah what Elijah did to all those prophets, and that's when he runs away. Ahab and Jezebel are the leaders of the northern kingdom during Jehoshaphat's reign. All that is what 1 Kings is filled with, the wickedness of this king. And then we get Jehoshaphat, a short snapshot, a brief print. Almost all we get here is an epitaph, a short story of who he is, and what he did. He's also identified of who his mother is. And the reasons they do that in the Old Testament is keeping in mind that kings often had multiple wives. How would you know whose son he is? It's not by the dad. They all know who his dad was. The question is, who was his mom? Then you would know who his real brother or sister, not half, full brothers or sisters was. It's a way of tracing genealogy. And we get all that backdrop briefly in these first two verses. And after giving us that little background, in verse 43 now, the author is going to give us a look at King Jehoshaphat's heart. What was his heart really like? What did he really do? So here's what we read. And Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from doing it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. However, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. So what do we find that he did? It describes his heart. Here's the king when he becomes king. The first thing it tells us is he is one who followed in the ways of his father. Asa was a good king. He was one who looked to Yahweh and worshipped him. It said the son did the very same thing. It describes him in a second way. Not only walk in the ways of his father, he did not turn aside from it. And the word oftentimes brings the idea that if you're going to turn aside, you can turn to the left. You can turn to the right. This one's just saying he just stayed right on course the whole time. This is a king that kept his eyes on Yahweh. This is a guy who followed Yahweh his life. God was the one he worshipped, and that's what he did. It continues on about him. Not only that, it also says he did right in the sight of the Lord. 
And that somehow when God looked down on his life, he saw a good thing taking place. Oh, he may recall that verse in 2 Chronicles 16.9 that his dad knew about. When the prophet said, look, the eyes of the Lord are looking to and fro around the earth. For the Lord to strongly support those whose heart is completely and devoted to him. And here, here, here's Jehoshaphat. He's that man. Yahweh looks down on Jehoshaphat. A man who doesn't turn to his left or to his right. A man who follows him in the sight of the Lord is seeing all that that takes place. And that's the heart of this king. But, but then it goes into his acts. What are some things this king did? And the first thing it says he did is what he didn't do. The end of verse 43. However, the high places, and that's those places of worship, that's where the idols were, they're usually up on the mountains where people could see them in a the distance. In those high places of worship, of temple worship, of adultery, I mean, idolatry, well, adultery too took place, but it was idolatry was the focus. The idolatry that is there, it says this, the high places were not taken away. Why? Because the people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. So we get the heart of the king not going to his right or to his left. However, for the people, one of the acts that he didn't accomplish, he somehow allowed the people to continue to worship on the high places. When we consider the end of his life, that is what they're doing. And they're burning incense to idols and false gods. It goes on to describe what he did, verse 44. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. That's King Ahab. So all of a sudden he made a treaty of the northern kingdom is Israel. After they broke apart, there's not a good relation between the southern and northern kingdom. But Jehoshaphat was able to build some kind of an alliance, some kind of treaty with Ahab, so that there was an agreement between them. And he brought some peace between those two nations, even to the place that they could actually work together in warfare. He says the next thing about him in verse 45. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might, which he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Jews? Now it talks about his warfare. This is a king that somehow saw success in battle. He was victorious when he went out with his troops. Somehow when he went to battle, he would win. This is a king that understood war, but he also won at war. He was one who had warfare and it took place and he won and was victorious in that. It continues on about him. What else did he do? Verse 46. The remnant of the Sodomites who remained in the days of his father Asa, he expelled from the land. These were the male prostitutes. This is that temple worship. And when I said idolatry and adultery that took place in those. He's saying there were the male prostitutes there that his dad didn't deal with. But Jehoshaphat did. And he took the male prostitutes of that temple worship and expelled them from the land, getting rid of that kind of worship. What else did he do? Verse 47. Now there was no king in Edom, and a deputy was king. So he came into the southern kingdom. So he had the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. He found that Edom was on the southeast corner of, of Judah. There was no king at that time. So what he did is he put a deputy king. He assigned somebody responsible to oversee those people during that time. You see sort of an expansion of his kingdom at this time. What else does he do? Verse 48. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish 
to go to Ophir for gold. But they did not go, for the ships were broken at Asian Geber. So here's something that failed. He somehow put together a fleet of ships. It turned out what he was going back to, there was a trade route established between Solomon and Ophir, and that's where gold would come from. Jehoshaphat determined he was going to make this same trade route existing again, had all his ships put together, and sent them off to do that. But they were destroyed in some way. That trade route was never accomplished. So he did fail in accomplishing that. And one final thing it says here, verse 49. Then Ahaziah, the sons of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. So Ahaz is the, the, the son of Ahab. He wants to establish some kind of treaty between the northern and the southern kingdom. And Jehoshaphat says he's not going to do that. So he did not create a treaty or an alliance that way with the northern kingdom. So he maintained a separation in that way. And finally, it summarizes his life this way. Verse 50. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers, was buried with his fathers in the city of his father David, and Jehoram his son became king in his place. That's a quick snapshot, looking at his heart and his acts. But, but there's something that takes place here that really gives us a feel for what is his epitaph. It's a little harder picking up in our English translations. There's a Hebrew word he used in this, in this passage, and in a couple of chronicles, it is used oh, four times. Hebrew words translate different ways. It can be, oh, it can be the idea of turning aside, turning away, tearing something down, destroying something, or removing something. A whole different way you can translate it. So with all these variety of translations, the same word shows up, but our English translations, we get different ones. So let me show these four to you. So here's what's taking place. In his life. This is the epitaph of his life. This is what he really did. Somehow tearing down, removing, turning aside these things. So verse 43, we've looked at this, but it brings us back to the idea of what he's talking about here. Two times this word is used. It says that he walked in, in all the ways of his father Asa, and here's the word. He did not turn aside from it. That word turn aside is this key word. It says somehow in his relationship with God, it's one that he didn't turn aside one way or the other. No turning aside. Okay? Second place it's used in this verse is the very last sentence where it reads, However, the high places were not taken down. That's the same word, not taken down. It's like, so, yeah, so here he is. He's not turning to the right or left. However, we've got these idols up here, and he chose not to tear them down turn them aside or remove them. Same word. He did this thing here. He didn't do something here. Now here's where it becomes a little interesting on his life. Because Second Chronicle uses both words again, but there's one passage that says, hmm, what really happened here? Turn to Second Chronicles 17. Second Chronicles 17. Now, the author of Chronicles has 17 to 20. There's four chapters about his life. The author gives a quick summary of his life. What happened at the very beginning of his life? And then the author is going to give a summary of what happened at the end of his life. First Kings gives us a summary of just his life. Here's what we read, 2 Chronicles 17. Starting at verse 3, here's what it says. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat. And because he followed the example of his father's David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, 
followed his commandments and did not act as Israel did. He's a special king that we have here. Verse 5. So the Lord established a kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. This is a great testimony of this king. One more verse to give you the synopsis of the beginning of him being king. He took great pride in the ways of the Lord, and, here's our key word, he removed the high places and the ashram from Judah. Verse 7, then in the third year of his reign. So at the very beginning of his reign as king, he's not turning to the right or to the left. He's following Yahweh directly. In the beginning of his ministry, he somehow went to the high places and tore down all those idols, tore down the ashram. He removed everything, and it wasn't there. At the beginning of his reign as a king. And he reigns for 25 years. Here's a statement of the author of Chronicles at the end of his life. Turn to chapter 20. Verse 33. 32. We'll get the snapshot. This one feels like 1 Kings. This is getting to the end of his life. This is a summary at the end, not the beginning. At the beginning, he didn't turn to the right or left. He did exactly what God called him to. And he tore down. That's our word. Here's what it reads at the end of his life, though. He walked in the way of his father Asa and did not depart from doing what was right in the sight of God. Sounds like First Kings, doesn't it? And here it is. The high places, however, were not removed. The people had not yet directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. How is it that they were removed at the end of his life? They're not removed. I think this is what happened. When he started out as king, with his heart right with Yahweh, his heart and acts were right too. And he went and tore down all those idols for the whole nation of Judah. But what happened after five years and you decided that you wanted to build your own idol again. And idols were built by the people. So by the end of 25 years, the idols that were torn down had been rebuilt. So Kings wants us to understand, the author of Kings is saying, look, here's a guy who never tore him down is how it almost reads. But that's not actually what happened. This is a guy who did tear him down. And somehow after tearing them down, allowed them to be rebuilt. You think of Jehoshaphat then. The question is, what is his epitaph? What, what, what is it that the author Kings wants us to see about him? All right, here's what we know about him. He reigned from 873 to 848 B.C. 25 years he reigned. Here's what the author wants us to see of him. He guarded his own heart but not the heart of others. This is a king that guarded his own heart. He didn't turn to the right or left. But somehow, with God's people, he guarded their hearts at first. But when they started rebuilding and doing things that he knew wasn't right, that he wouldn't do himself, he didn't guard their hearts and stop it. 
He allowed it to happen. He guarded his heart, but not the heart of others. You know, it poses some questions for us then. If we were to look at our tombstone as a follower of Christ, it leaves us a couple questions to think about. First, oh, there we go. First question would be, do I guard my own heart? And the second question is, do I guard the heart of others? Do I guard my own heart? I want to talk to the moms, the wives, the grandmoms. Somehow God's given this capacity to nurture and care. You just have a real commitment to your family, to your kids. No matter how old they are, they're always your kids. And you're going to love them no matter what. I mean, I can go to your Facebook and see what's really important to you. We could check out your Instagram. If you're a new mom, we know what Instagram looks like. It's just picture after picture. Why? It's what's important to you. And as moms, you will sacrifice anything for your kids, your husband, to serve your family. You make plans for them. You educate them. You teach them. Desire to read the Bible with them. You're the one that makes sure that they get to Awana, to children's ministry. You're going to make sure they get to VBS. And you're going to find yourself totally exhausted in life. There's days you wake up and you just don't know how you keep going. And somehow your tank gets drained because you're guarding the hearts of others. And you don't even guard your own heart. And as a mom, as a wife, as a grandmother, you don't take time for yourself. You make every sure everybody else has things in order. But you're not guarding your heart. Not taking time for yourself. Not developing that walk with Christ. Not being sure you're obedient how you live. Not making sure your love for Christ grows deeper. Because you guard the hearts of others but not yourself. Some of you are in ministry here at the church. You may serve as an elder, a deacon, a pastor. You may serve as ministry director. You may serve as a community group leader. You may serve in Awana, children's... There are so many things we do here that we serve other people in, and you do that. And you really care for those other people. You do things day in and day out here. Email goes out that we need help. You show up. You do the Easter eggs. You'll do VBS. You're here to serve. And day in and day out, you sacrifice and serve others here. You're committed to it. You love them and you do it. You care for them. You shepherd them. You plan them. You budget. You sacrifice for others here. And you guard their hearts. But you don't guard your own heart. And you're exhausted, and you're tired, and your tank is empty, and you keep giving to others as you serve here. But you're not guarding your own heart. And some of you, those same leaders, you may guard your heart, but you don't guard the hearts of others. 
You serve in those capacities, but if you're really honest, you like those pats on the back. It strokes your ego. It makes you feel good the way you serve other people. You enjoy the meetings. You enjoy the minutes. You enjoy the activity for yourself and what you get and what you gain. That it runs smoothly. That you can report to other people how well you did. That you can hear from others how good you did. But when you're honest, you're not really guarding the hearts of the others that you minister to. It somehow comes off more as serving you. For the dads, husbands, granddads, we wrestle with this too. We're good at guarding our heart. We're good at making sure our schedule's in place, making sure we show up at work. We make sure that we're bringing in the money. We make sure we budget things. We make sure we plan the family for the things that have to take place. We even make sure we get time for ourselves. Whether it's in sports that we enjoy, whether we're cheering the Bulls, the Blackhawks, the Bears, the Cubs, the Sox, whatever, we enjoy that. We make sure we get to watch the TV we want to. We make sure we guard our heart. We make sure we spend time with ourselves. We make sure we do that. But do we guard the hearts of others? As men, we accumulate all this vacation time, which we call a great benefit, and then we never use it. And our wife is like, honey, can't you take some days off? You've got six weeks vacation coming. I'm sorry, honey. Because you don't guard her heart or the family. You know, as dads, what we find ourselves doing is we're glad our wife takes the kids to Awana, make sure they get the VBS, make sure they read the Bible at night, make sure they pray, but do we do that? Dads, are we the one really guarding the hearts of our kids? Do they sense that we really care and love them by the time we spend with them? And all we as dads know the important thing, we're supposed to spend quality time with our kids, and we say, that's what I do. You know what I learned? You'll never spend quality time with your kids unless you spend quantity time with your kids. It doesn't happen by planning it. It happens in those unplanned moments and all. Guys, do you guard the heart of your wife? Do you make sure she's cared for by you? That she's cultivating her walk with Christ? That she's following him closely? That her tank is being filled. I had breakfast with a friend yesterday. So we're out there for breakfast and we're chatting through our week of how it went and everything. and Things that we did and things that had happened and all. And, and uh, as we finished up, he said to me, he said, so Mike, are you spending time with Mel? I said, well, sure. I'm spending time with Mel. Then I got home and told Mel, maybe we should go to a movie tonight Maybe we should go out to dinner because I had a friend who reminded me that I need to guard the heart of my wife and not just mine. I would have enjoyed staying home and watching the Blackhawks. 
I went to a movie and dinner with my wife. And we didn't go to Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> we got our hearts of our wives, our kids, our grandkids. Guys, we need to be the ones spending time, but playing, engaged, guarding the heart with them. Or we're just like Jehoshaphat, who guarded his heart, but not the heart of others. As leaders in the church here, and that's all of us, that we guard our hearts, those are the hearts of others. We're a community of saints. We're the body of Christ. We're to care for one another. All of us need to guard our hearts and the hearts of others. One of the, one of the saddest things that takes place in Jehoshaphat's life, it almost tells you how those idols got built. His son grows up, and his son gets married. You know who he marries? King Ahab's daughter, the most wicked king and queen in the Old Testament. And somehow his son, somehow his son ends up marrying their daughter with all the options that were available in the southern kingdom. His son marries her. And you know who he patterned his life after? Not his dad, but his father-in-law. You know, folks, one of the most important things you need to teach your kids when they're young is who to marry. When I say young, I mean three, four, and five. Do not wait to talk to your kids about who to date. Trust me on this. When in fourth or fifth grade, that boy calls up, or at school says to your daughter, can you go to this movie, a movie with me on Saturday? And you're like, oh, that won't happen. It will happen. It's too late to talk to them about, quote, dating. You talk to your kids when they're young about who they date and who they marry. You talk to them when they're young that they marry a Christian. But that's not even good enough. You want them to marry a growing Christian. You want them to marry somebody who's following Christ. You want them to marry somebody who's committed to Christ. And folks, I'm aware as believers, we cannot control who our kids marry. I understand that. And some of you have broken hearts over who your kids have married. And it may not be because of what you taught them, but it's somehow what they chose to do. But with young families, you don't wait till they get ready to date to tell them about dating. You teach them when they're young. You teach them when they're young what God would want in their life in the future. And you make it really clear to them what God wants for them. That a believer marries a believer. That a growing Christian marries a growing Christian. That a godly family is made up of two committed followers of Christ who are committed to Christ. As their love grows for him, it grows for one another. Each of us 
wants to find ourselves to learn from this book, from Jehoshaphat, not what he did, but what we're supposed to do. Here should be the epitaph. As a woman, she guarded her heart and the heart of others. That's what you want on your tombstone, women. You guarded your heart and the heart of others. For the men, similar thing. That we would come, and if we were to celebrate your going home, it would say on your gravestone, he guarded his heart and the heart of others. There's one point out of this. Here's the whole point that the author of Kings wants us to get. It's this. This should be on all of our tombstones. Guard your heart and the heart of others. That's it, my friends. Guard your heart. For some of you this morning, you may be here hearing this for the first time. You've been coming to the church and visiting for weeks. It may be your first time here. You're hearing this idea about guarding your heart. It may begin for you. Guarding your heart with God starts with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Just as we shared here about communion. It's that fact that Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was raised again on the third day. That we need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And it's that faith, that faith, that trust alone in Christ that gives you that relationship with him. And that's where guarding your heart begins. But for the rest of us who know Christ, that's where it continues from. So the author of Kings would say to all of us today, Guard your heart and the heart of others. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we um, give you thanks for Jehoshaphat, a king that did follow you, a king that began well, but didn't end as well. Lord, for all of us, that you'd cause us to be men and women young people and children who guard our hearts, that they are set right with Jesus Christ, and after being set right with him, they continue to grow that way, but also guard in the hearts of others as well. So we commit our lives to you, Lord, and our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.